Welcome to God's Messenger Lighthouse Podcast. This is your host, Brother Scott Messenger, bringing you Chapter 20 from The Tire Tracks by James W. Knox. True stories of childhood, adventure, exploration, and friendship. Chapter 20, The Witch's House Burns Down. It was a very sad day when grown-ups ran out of room in town and began to eat away at the tire tracks. The boys first began to notice stakes and flags appearing along parts of the East Road and the West Fork. Then areas of the Northwest were carved up to make a track for motorcycle racers. Later, huge cranes began to pull muddy scoops of dirt from the Twin Lakes and haul them away in mighty dump trucks which cut deep ruts into the land. The boys knew their beloved woodlands would soon be gone forever. Yet there were some advantages to these attacks upon the fields and forests. In the evenings, they would, they could climb on and into the great cranes and backhoes and bulldozers and turn them into tanks or dinosaurs or spacecraft and play until dark. The large hills of mud would dry out after a time and were a great place to take groups of friends to play King of the Mountain or divide into teams and play dodgeball, actually dodge dirt clods. Leveling out the top of one of the highest of these hills provided an excellent campsite for an overnight stay. It was great fun to hide in the wheat grass, wait for one of the workers' trucks coming in or one of the big dump trucks going out, and then at just the right moment to leap from the brush, scream loudly, and watch the driver jump for fear and slam on his brakes, then run for cover as he shouted angry oaths and threatenings. Just east of Tarpoon Bay, the grown-ups paved a tiny spur of a road that ran only a few hundred yards into the woods in the direction of the giant oak trees. Though the boys made many guesses, they could not understand why this was done. Several months later, a second of these short dead-end streets was paved. The mystery was solved by year's end when the big cranes began to dig and started mounds of white shiny shell, like the stuff that had been used to make Fairway Drive and the other roads which led away from the city limits. Day after day, the machines stuck their heads into the ever-growing pools of turquoise water, got a mouthful of shell, bit down too tightly close um, mighty metal jaws, then raising their heads high with water dripping from their faces, they would swing their long necks over to the hill and spit out a huge portion of wet shells. Higher and higher the hills grew. They were five feet tall after a week, then ten. The feasting went on and on. The boys watched as the men pulling the levers in the belly of the noisy beasts kept eating away at the big hole in the ground, twenty feet tall and growing. In a couple months, there was a hill of broken shell fragments pressed down and piled so high that the hungry machine could no longer lift its head high enough to spew out what it had gobbled up. When the full heat of summer arrived that year, the workmen loaded up their mechanical monsters and drove away, leaving Colin James and 
incredible gift. Never before had they seen hills so high they had to be 30 feet tall. Never before had they seen water that was not brown or browner. This pond was a beautiful shade of blue mingled with green, the likes of which they had only seen in a couple of encyclopedia photographs. When the shell would cut or scratch you, it had real advantages over the dirt hills they had known all their lives. They climbed to the top and revealed and reveled in the feeling of power one got from being so high above the ground. They were eye level with the limbs in the trees to the south and west of them, and looking north and east they could see the golf course and the houses lining the edge of town. They shouted, they sang, they threw the biggest shells down into the water or out into the woods. The hills were so steep they could get into a crouch, then slide down the side of the mountain on the soles of their shoes. It was slow going but fun. The next time out they hauled large cardboard boxes with them which they had found in a trash pile behind Tom Mitchell's lumber yard. Sitting on these they could slide at super speeds, being careful not to slide toward the lake and ruin their cardboard box magic carpets in the water. It was great fun, but the trouble with great fun is that it often turns to mediocre fun and requires that more fun be added in order to keep the fun fun. One morning, as the boys were about to get on their bikes and head to Shell Mountains, James' eye lit upon a most beautiful sight. All right, he said, dismounting the bike he had just mounted. Look at what we have here. Hal watched his friend move rapidly down the driveway. I'm looking, he said, puzzled. He called out, all I see is a couple of garbage cans. You may disregard the can, my man, and you may freely ignore their smelly contents, James said, walking deliberately to the curb where the rubbish awaited pickup. But would the audience please focus its attention upon? Grabbing the handles on each of the lids, he lifted them swiftly, spun about to face Kyle, and announced, The perfect slides! Then... The moment Kyle saw those round metal shields James was waving over his head, he knew this was going to be a great day. Let's go, Kyle yelled. Off they rode, each with a big plate in one hand and a handle bar in the other. They reached the ponds as fast as they could, scurried to the top of one of the mountains, sat upon the metal disc and slid part way down the hill. Not so great. Something's not working right, James admitted. The handles are dragging on the shell, Kyle deduced. Right as usual, old boy, James complimented his friend, and soon they were smashing away with big stomps of their feet until the handles of the trash can lids were as flat as they could make them. The next few attempts were a bit faster and quite bumpy, but with each successive try, the big pieces of shell were cast aside, the smaller ones smoothed out, and the next trip would be a bit faster than the other. 
down they slid, commenting on how thrilling or how problematic the run had been. Up they climbed as fast as their legs would carry them to try again. Soon they found that if they laid the lid upon the ground, ran toward it, and threw themselves upon it in a sitting position, they gained more speed. Next they timed the jump so one would shove the other in the back just as he kept upon the lid or leapt upon the lid. A few of these efforts were not timed so well and resulted in jarring mid air collisions. Then they tried running and jumping on the lid in a standing position to try and ride it down the slope like a surfboard. This seldom worked, but the tumbles and spills it caused set up gales of laughter every time. As the hours wore on, a smooth rut formed, which ran all the way down one of the Shell Mountains right to the edge of the Turquoise Lake. Then it happened, the perfect combination leading to the perfect ride and roaring to the perfect finish. From the top on the white shining mountain, Kyle looked far down to the water below. He gave the battered trash can lid a toss to get it skidding down the hillside. He ran after it in long, perfect strides. He jumped. He landed exactly atop the metal disc at an angle which did not slow it down but caused it to accelerate. His eyes were as wide as they could open. His mouth was the same. James saw the blur shoot past him and turned to watch the magnificent finale. Splash! At top speed, Kyle hit the water. Jets of blue-green spray shot out in every direction. Ripples raced toward every shore. Kyle floated to the surface to raise a fist of glee high into the air. James was clapping and cheering wildly from the mountainside. Kyle was calling out, Yeah! 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 It was incredible. Neither of the boys was very good at science. It had not occurred to them that the land below, or that land below the surface of the water might angle downward as steeply as the mountains above angled upward. When Kyle tried to stand to walk out of the water, it began to occur to him when he swam to the shore and then felt the receding bottom beneath his feet. It was more than an occurrence, and when he began to search with his feet, hoping to bump his toes against the flying saucer on which he had just flown into the lake, he knew at once that he had probably taken it on its last ride. James made a few dives down as far as he could go, but his attempts to recover the sunken disc were futile. Not wanting to risk losing another lid, the boys spent the rest of the afternoon swimming and talking about Kyle's perfect ride, and every now and then looking to see if maybe the disc had floated to the surface, but it had not. Sliding down the mountain on a metal trash can lid had been great fun until Kyle rode one all the way into the water. Now, riding down the sides away from the water did not seem as exciting. They tried tying a rope to the handle on the lid and another end around their ankle so 
They could attempt to slide into the water without losing the saucer, but that did not work at all. So they came up with a new game. They would run down the mountain and see how many steps they could take on top of the water before they sank. This led to many disputes about how much of the leg could be in the water and a step still be called a step. In any case, neither of them ever got past four or five, depending on who won the dispute. When they got home, they put the one now battered top on one of the garbage cans. That night, Kyle was very happy to hear his father ranting angrily about the hoodlums stealing the lid to his trash can and fuming about how their cars had run over the other one and flattened it. Kyle thought he might tell what really happened, but when he heard his father say what he would do to the hoodlums who damaged his garbage bins if he ever caught them, it seemed a good time to pass on the confession. Autumn followed summer, and though the waters had grown too cold for swimming, the boys still liked to climb to the top of the Shell Mountains to talk and have lunch. Only a couple of trees in the tire tracks had real leaves that changed colors and fell, but the pines and cypress trees did thin out as their needles dropped to the earth, and from the mountaintop this allowed the boys to see all the way to the great oaks to the south, the giant pipes to the west, and almost to Kyle's house to the north. Even from this high place they could not peer into the darkness of the island, and they told each other great tales of the dangers which must surely be lurking there. James was certain that since there were wild hogs there, it was possible there might be a small tribe of dark men with grass skirts and nose rings who hunted the pigs with spears. Maybe they were cannibals, or would be if they ever had the chance to catch a couple of boys. Kyle assumed it was a place where enormous snakes lived in the trees and dropped down upon you to crush and then swallow you. He had seen something like that in a movie and thought the trees on the island looked a lot like the trees in that film. As they looked toward the place where lost tribes or fierce serpents would have you for lunch, Kyle suddenly cried, SMOKE! Leaping to his feet, he pointed to a thick cloud of gray and black twisting wildly upward from the woods to their left. That is where the witches have their house, James declared. Hurry! They scrambled down the hill, mounted their bikes, sped over pavements, and shot around corners, hurried past the house with the tripping parakeets, and got to Dead Man's Curve to behold a flurry of frenzied activities. There were police cars with flashing lights, and beside them policemen yelling at people to get back, get back, stay on the other side of the road, please. There was a crowd of people all chattering, pushing against one another, trying to get past the people beside them, straining to look down the long dirt road which led to the witch's house. There were Two fire trucks stopped in the middle of the street. The firemen were shouting to each other and at each other. 
It seemed they had not been able to drive the trucks down the long dirt road. James heard one of the helmeted men in a big yellow raincoat swearing that he could not take the truck down there. Another fireman was calling to a man inside one of the trucks, angrily saying again and again, Why not? But why not? I bet there is a spell that keeps the trucks from being able to enter, Kyle said excitedly. Could be they are afraid there is some other door to another dimension, James said. Certain the men must know of that blood-curdling danger. An important-looking man rushed past the crowd and began talking to the fireman who was in charge. A policeman came over and was talking wildly and pointing down the dirt, the long dirt road. The boys pushed their way through the throng and got right behind the fire chief. There are people in that house and we can't get them out, he said loudly with fear in his voice. You mean you can't get to them for the fire? asked the important-looking man angrily with fear in his voice. No, sir, they won't come to us, said the fire chief. They are standing outside the house. They have a pack of huge dogs, and some of them appear to be holding shotguns, said the policeman firmly, with fear in his voice. We've tried to get some men to carry hose down the road so we can pump water onto the house, but until those people put down their guns and we get those dogs out of there, I can't send my men any further. The fire chief said forcefully, with fear in his voice. Cool, James said, not meaning to speak out loud. The important-looking man looked their way and snarled. You boys get away from here. Did you order them to leave? Asked the important-looking man, turning his gaze back to the officers. We called to them, but they just yelled back at us in some kind of language we did not understand. I don't think they speak English. The fire chief replied, Told you, Kyle blurted out, And I told you to get out of here, yelled the important-looking man, as the whole group of main men turned to look down at them. They are witches, James said, trying to help. They have trained spiders and wolf dogs, and they can make you disappear. It's true, said Kyle. Go home, yelled the policeman. James and Kyle could not believe these men did not want to know the secrets of the tire tracks, especially at such an important moment. Saddened, the boys hurried from the, that scene and plunged into the woods, took a looping trail which circled around through the place where the spiders had attacked them. There were no spiders hanging there today, for the fire had already torn through that part of the wilderness. They hurried toward the house and in only a couple of minutes, they were almost to the spot where they had come face to face with the snarling canines years before. They threw themselves onto the ground and inched forward on their elbows through the charred ground and smoldering ashes until they were so close they could see and hear everything. The old wooden house was nearly gone, engulfed in flames which darted upward from every window and licked happily at all the walls inside and out. The metal roof was glowing orange, pulsating with heat, and here and there holes would immediately appear as sections of the housetop vanished. Strangely, the porch was still intact, but the fire was 
inching ever closer to this last unharmed section of the dwelling. Some of the more adventurous parts of the fire had made their way into the brush in many directions and found and had found sheds, outbuildings, rabbit hutches, dog kennels, and rotting cars. Great delight was taken in setting ablaze these decayed remnants of a better time at the witch's house, so that there were a dozen or more smaller fires round about the main inferno. It took the pair of explorers a moment to realize they had purposefully kept their eyes from falling on the witches when they finally focused their attention on the huddled group standing in the bare dirt so close to their expiring house that they must have been seared by the heat. The sight was astonishing. There had to be at least 20, maybe 30 persons standing so close together you could not really count them nor tell them apart. Each one looked to be a hundred years old or more. The men all had a dirty, loose-fitting denim pants with dirty, loose-fitted denim jackets or ill-fitted overalls made of denim. The ladies had on long dresses, plain in style and color, each one looking as old as the creature it adorned. The men and the women all had hair as white and gray as the ashes floating down from their high sky flight atop the flames. Beside the cluster of ancients sat half a dozen huge black wolves, or dogs, or both, but there was no snarling, growling, or barking. Everyone looked so sad and so confused, both man and woman and beast. This is so odd, James said softly. What is? Kyle asked, thinking that everything he saw was odd. None of them is looking at their house. And so it was. Many looked down the dirt road toward the flashing lights and chaos. Others just looked around as if searching for some way to escape without facing the mob of people who had come to watch their possessions go up in smoke. The people talked softly to one another in a language the boys had never heard, but there was no mistaking the tone. They were afraid. The great guardians at their feet whimpered and sighed. They were afraid. Yes, some of them had guns, but then they all had something in their hands or arms. They were just holding such items as they had gathered when they fled from the fire. There did not seem to be any more danger from the gun in the arms of the old man than from the dishes in the arms of the woman next to him. Kyle, my trusted friend, do you hear what I hear? James asked with that tone of determination that always and instantly made Kyle nervous. He listened. Sirens, crackling flames, witches talking in witch-like tongues. Tell me, Kyle said, running out of guesses. The fireman, men, the police chief, and the important guy were all afraid. These old witches and even the wolf dogs are all afraid. You can hear it, James said certainly. I guess I would be too if my house was burning down, or if I had to go save witches who could turn me into a water buffalo, Kyle answered, wondering how any of the day's events could have made him think of a water buffalo. Come on, James said, standing straight up and 
instantly drawing the attention of the curious collection of troubled souls in front of the burning house. We have got to help all these people. Kyle did not move, but watched as James took a couple of steps forward. The men took the dogs by their necks. The dogs stood up, but made no sound and no other motion. The women drew closer to the men. James smiled and held up his hand. Let us help you. He's a goner. He's a goner. Hal began to repeat to himself, trying to steady his nerves. We will show them that you mean no harm today, James said loudly. The witches all stared at him. They did not respond with word or gesture. Watching them carefully, James said, Kyle, if something had not broken their power, their house would not be burning down. If their spells were not broken, the wolf dogs would have been on us long ago. As Kyle began to stand up, James continued, We have been down this road almost to where they are standing. There were no passages to the other dimension then, and I am guessing there are not any there now. Then calling to the people, he said, I will tell them you will not hurt them. No one moved. Still facing the group of old frightened witches, James started backing down the long dirt road. As Kyle hurried to get behind him, there was a great crash as one corner of the house fell in upon itself. A great shower of sparks flew upward. Smoke and ash shot sideways. The company who had lived inside the dying home flinched, but not a one of them turned to look upon the fiery ruin. When they had made it some way down the long dirt road, James and Kyle turned and ran toward the now larger collection of rescue workers, not rescuing, and firefighters not fighting the fire, and gazers with nothing much to gaze upon. Hey! 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 The boys were shouting and waving their arms as they hastened from one scene of confusion to another. Shocked to, to see two boys running from the burning house, a half dozen men started running toward them. They might have heard a fireman say, Are you boys hurt? They were fairly certain they heard a policeman say, Did you start that? They heard the onlookers raise their collective volume of chatter to a shrill pitch, but the more important-looking man shot through to them, and in a flash, he and the police captain and the fire chief were all shouting at once, What is the meaning of this? Or something to that effect. We took a path we know through the woods and got up to the house, James shouted. There are about thirty people back there and some wolf dogs like we told you. Witches, Kyle interjected, mainly because it added to the bravery of their mission. They don't have any more power, and they are scared. They are afraid you are going to hurt them, James told the six eyes, staring down at them, at him. The guns are just part of their stuff. They don't mean to use them. He did not wait for a response or a rebuke. Taking the important-looking man by his long, white-sleeved arm, James said, Come on, we will take you to them. James tugged and started toward the house. The men came along. The crowd pressed close to watch the odd parade as two boys led a dozen grown men down a long dirt road through the woods 
to a house nearly consumed by fire. They came into a clearing, just as the boys had done on that long ago morning when their bikes had carried them to their first glimpse of the witch's house. They saw the group of old, sad, frightened people standing motionless, with nothing left in life but what they held in their arms. James and Kyle spread their arms wide, then with a waving motion said, Come on, it's okay. Following their lead, the men behind them did the same. For a moment, no one moved. Then one of the old men looked to the woman at his side and nodded. They stepped forward. Then the others began to move along with them. The men from the outside world broke apart to let the people pass. Some walked alongside them. Some walked behind them. Feeling as proud as they ever had in their lives, Kyle and James led the way out down the long dirt road. The crowd noise softened and then disappeared as the assembled company stared in wonder at the strangest procession any of them would ever see. The fire trucks moved aside. The police pushed the people back. A big yellow school bus pulled up and one by one the old people climbed inside. Jittery and confused, the wolf dogs were herded on board. The oldest looking man, the one who had motioned for the others to move, watched until all were on board. He stood for a moment and looked at all the commotion around him. He was shaking. He had tears in his eyes. He then turned and walked to where Kyle and James stood, watching the most unusual action. Without changing his expression, he rubbed them each on their shoulder, then said something they could not understand, and tipped his head gracefully to one and then the other. He stepped into the bus. The bus drove away. The witches were never seen again. A fire truck went down the long dirt road, and a crew put out what remained of the fire. The crowd chatted in little groups for a while, and then slowly dispersed and went back to lives far less interesting. The cars and trucks rolled away, and the road was opened again. The police captain left. The fire trucks departed about an hour later. The last to go were the fire chief and the important-looking man. The chief lit a cigarette. Cal thought that was funny. He starts them, and he puts them out. He laughed to himself. The important-looking man started to get into his car. One leg in, one leg out. He leaned upon the top of the door and called out, Hey, boys! They stood up. Come over here, please. They did so. I want to thank you for what you did today. That was pretty brave of you. Yes, sir, they said in unison. Thank you, sir. But you should know it was pretty dangerous, what with the fire and the guns and all. I am sure your parents would want you to be more careful, he said, because grown-ups never pass up the opportunity to give a lecture. They tell me us that all the time, said Kyle, sir, he hurriedly added, having forgotten the required word. But, James said, the most exciting days in the whole world are the dangerous ones. I guess you're right about that, the important-looking man said. He got in the car and drove away. The boys re 
retrieve their bikes. Want to go see the ruins? James asked. Maybe tomorrow. I'm starving, Hal answered. Me too. They started for home as they passed the little white picket fence where the witches had sent uh, Yancey Guest's brother into another dimension. They rode away from it to the far side of the pavement, just in case. Just in case. Next time, Chapter 21, Rowing to the Ocean. You can find this book, The Tire Tracks, by James W. Knox and many of his other books at www.jameswknox.org or go straight to the store part of the website at store.jameswknox.org. Join me again next time for Chapter 21, Rowing to the Ocean.